Welcome to Success Strategies for Dental Practice Owners, the podcast for dentists who are ready to take their practice to new heights. Join your host, Stan Kinder, who has worked with the profession over four decades and now represents practice owners interested in exploring a relationship with a DSO. On the show, he explores ways to grow your income and increase the value of your practice. Expect thoughtful conversations with influential guests who are pioneers in the dental industry. From insightful dental consultants to brilliant marketing experts, from accomplished dental practice owners to innovative dental manufacturers, this podcast will bring you a diverse range of perspectives. Success Strategies for Dental Practice Owners is here to equip you with the tools and information you need to thrive. Your practice's future begins right here. And now, here's your host, Stan Kinder. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of the uh, Success Strategies for Dental Practice Owners uh, podcast. I dare you to try and say that three times fast. I can barely get it out once. I'd like to welcome uh, our guest today, Bill Barrett. He is the managing partner of the Mandelbaum Barrett Law Firm, and uh, I know them to be one of the leading firms, if not the leading firm nationally, in terms of representing dentists um, in their transitions. Bill and I uh, know each other. We've collaborated in the past. He's represented clients of mine, and I have worked with him to help source buyers and negotiate terms for clients of his. But we're going to pursue the discussion as if we don't know each other, as difficult as that might be. Bill, a good starting point maybe is for you to tell us a little bit about both yourself and uh, Manamon Barrett as a firm and sort of how you came to focus on the down edge. Yeah, thanks, Dan, and thanks for having me on. It's a pleasure. And although we'll pretend we don't know each other, as you said, it might it might be hard because we, we go back a long way. So, you know, in terms of uh, myself personally, I began my career thinking that I wanted to do big law, uh, you know, big worldwide law firm in New York City, mergers and acquisitions, real estate, and um, got into that and was excited to get a, a job at a firm like that. And then, you know, very quickly realized it really wasn't for me. And after doing some soul searching, I realized I really wanted to, to represent individuals and entrepreneurs and of course of which doctors and dentists in particular are right at the top of that list of, of entrepreneurs. So I um, left the city and and kind of went to a firm that focused on entrepreneurial clients and it was the right fit for me and I've now been here 24 years and uh, you know as you know my name is now uh, you know part of the firm name so it's it, it was a great career path and choice for me. How did I get involved with dentistry is one of those things in life where you know, like a lot of things, sometimes they happen on accident. And I remember being a young lawyer, I wasn't even a partner in the firm yet. And I was trying to develop uh, a reputation and a, and a rapport and, and with people and try to um, network, if you will, and develop relationships um, to build a practice. And I remember having lunch with an accountant who focused on representing dentists and was part of the American Academy of Dental CPAs. And uh, we had a nice lunch one day and he said, hey, I have an annual client appreciation night where I bring in guest speakers and I have about 300 dentists that come and I think that you know you'd be a really good speaker and why don't I give you a 45 minute slot and why don't you talk about legal issues that just need to be aware of uh, and at the time I had one dentist as a client my own dentist so you know I did a lot of research and prepared for the speaking engagement and I went and gave it and you know lo and behold a few people in the room you know were interested and became clients and it kind of just evolved next thing you know we were 
doing trade shows and things of that nature in the dental profession, uh, first regionally, then nationally, and then we got involved with a lot of different national organizations. Fast forward 24 years later, on average, we get retained by one new dentist a day. So on average, four to five new doctors a week. We now have over 200 employees, of which 103 are lawyers. And, um, you know, and we have a, a unique and experienced focus in dentistry. So I appreciate you giving me the opportunity to spill all that out. But as I said, like a lot of things, it, it you know, it kind of happened on accident. And we've now actually helped over a thousand doctors nationwide execute over the last 24 years on their transitions. And Bill, talk to me a little bit. Uh, I know you're based in New Jersey, but that you represent uh, dental clients all over the country. Uh, speak to that a little bit for me, if you will. Sure. It's it's two, kind of twofold how we're able to do that. One, we have several attorneys in the firm that are licensed in, in many different jurisdictions. So a lot of the jurisdictions we are directly licensed in. In addition, we're part of a worldwide organization called Primaris. Primaris is a group of similarly sized and situated law firms throughout all 50 states, um, as well as even foreign countries. And as a member of Primaris, it's like having a uh, an extension or call it a, a sister or brother law firm on the ground in all 50 states. So when we have uh, a particular local or parochial matter that comes up within uh, the representation of our doctors, if we've handled that in that jurisdiction multiple times before, not an issue. But whenever we need a local practitioner, we have them in all 50 states. Um, we still take the lead on all of our transactions, just making sure that, that we don't run afoul of any state or local law or, or statute. So um, that's that's how we're able to do it. And that's how we have been able to expand our practice nationally. And I think at this point, we've handled transitions in just about all 50 states or pretty close to it, you know, certainly somewhere probably in the 40s. Got it. And, you know, clearly the legal needs of a practice owner sort of evolve over the course of their professional career. Everything from the initial formation of, uh, of their practice, ultimately to when they reach the point where they need to transition. And I know you you provided service across that full spectrum uh, or evolution over time. If you will, speak to that a little bit for me. My uh, um, example, I know we recently uh, collaborated on a client where you were involved in forming their initial entity and then handled their transition. Yeah, you know, because we're not just transition specialists, yes, we have expertise in that area, but we're a full-service law firm with 28 different areas of specialty within the firm. We pride ourselves on the fact that whatever comes up in the life of the dentist, we're able to help them every step along the way, whether it's business or personal. So using that example, we've had doctors, you know, now, now that I've got a little more gray hair in my head uh, and, and a little less hair than I had 24 years ago, um, you know, we've had a lot of clients who we've taken from inception, but from literally deciding what entity to form and starting their practice, whether it be a startup where they were acquiring their first practice. And we've helped them with things like acquiring the real estate and doing re refinances. We've, we've helped uh, doctors who wanted to build their own facilities, get local land use approvals to be able to build out a facility. And, you know, on a personal level, we've done their tax trust and estate planning to, you know, set them up and their family with their with their overall estate planning. We've advised them on, you know, best tax structures in terms of uh, being able to save money, handling employment law issues. You know, a lot of employment law issues come up for a lot of our doctors. It could be everything from the associate contracts to actual regulatory problems or issues with the 
Department of Labor or the IRS or independent contractor classification versus employee classification. A lot of doctors make mistakes in that area. And look, even for some of the unfortunate things in life, whether, you know, handling divorces and things like that. So, you know, um, we really try to pride ourselves on being a full service platform for them. And I mean, even we have what we call a special needs department in the firm where we have attorneys who specialize in uh, special needs for children, education law, elder care for people who have aging parents. So it's really trying to give the doctor one source of contact for any need that comes up in their personal or professional lifetime. Yeah. And I'm going to give you a small plug here, Bill. I'll take it. (laughs) And I advise dentists all the time, particularly those involved in a transition that, you know, it's this is not the time to use a brother-in-law who happens to be a real estate attorney. It really benefits to have experience and expertise in handling the issues that that you as a practice owner are confronting. So, you know, I encourage folks to think carefully about who's going to handle their representation on on these kinds of matters. And from my perspective and my direct experience, you can't do any better than uh, Bill and his colleagues at uh, Amanda Bombera. Well, it's funny you mentioned that, Stan, uh, because in the first book that I wrote um, called Pain-Free Dental Deals, part of one of the early chapters goes into building your team. And and I actually use a very similar analogy to kind of like the brother-in-law or or the sister-in-law or the cousin who's the divorce lawyer who's now going to help you with your dental practice transactions and kind of actual real-life stories on on how that goes poorly. But but it's not just about lawyers. I mean, I don't want it to all be, you know, self-serving. You know, having an accountant that specializes in representing dentists and having an insurance agent who has a lot of dentists as clients because they'll have access to different markets that other insurance agents might not have. And when and if you're an entrepreneurial dentist and you're you're out there trying to grow, you know, having a relationship with somebody who can find practice opportunities for you who does brokerage, having a banker who does a lot of dental and is and you have their, you know, them in your cell phone where you can call a decision maker and get them involved in your expansion, surrounding yourself with the people who are experts in your profession to your point and and not just the you know, the friend from the golf course or or a family member, you know, it's going to serve you well uh, over time for sure. Yeah, I would agree with you. And and I've been involved in transactions where, you know, that perhaps not specifically the brother-in-law who's a real estate attorney, but that kind of representation was involved. And those transactions are always more difficult and bumpier and don't always uh, end up in the best outcome for uh, the, the dental client. Yeah. And I think, I think part of that is too that that a person who doesn't have the expertise, again, in any sector, they're not going to know what's market in terms of what is okay to say yes to, right? There's sometimes people ask you for changes or deal terms or things that are okay. They're they're not outside of market and they're not unreasonable to potentially agree to. But if you don't know that, how can you advise on it? So what ends up happening, I think why you've had the experience as many of us have when it goes poorly for the doctor is on the flip side, they're afraid of what they don't know, so they become obstructionists on even issues that should not even be a big deal, things that should should easily be disposed of because they don't know what to fight over and what not to fight over, so they kind of fight over everything, and that becomes the problem. Yeah, don't disagree. You know, I've long sort of had the perspective that, you know, no dentist lives forever, and so every dentist is going to reach a point somewhere, a, a dental owner is going to reach a point
going somewhere along the line where they're going to need to transition their ownership. Historically, uh, you know, the two most common options were, you know, an associate to partner, buy in, buy out. The second was just simply an outright sale, usually broker assisted from one dentist to another dentist. And then uh, we now have this uh, new phenomenon in the marketplace, uh, the DSO buyer. If you will talk to me a little bit about what you see as the particular challenges of each of those options and uh, maybe uh, uh, some perspective on when one option versus the other might be more appropriate for the uh, the dental, dentist owner. Yeah. So we'll take a DSO transaction first, maybe. Um, I think that timing is a big issue with, with DSO transactions in the sense that, you know, DSOs uh, by definition, Definition, it's it's corporate dentistry, so they're not doctors that are making the acquisition, and they're really not in the business, or they don't want to be in the business of having to figure out replacements on a constant basis for every founder of every dental practice they buy. So they're going to want to have a certain amount of strings attached to to protect their interest, because we'll I'll talk in a minute about how if you look at the dollars that are being paid for practices, I think nobody would really argue that DSO transactions are generally speaking going to be more lucrative for the seller than a doctor-to-doctor deal. But right out of the gate, what I see in the marketplace now is DSOs don't want to sign a deal with a doctor unless they're willing to work at least five more years after the closing. Sure, are there exceptions? There's always a couple exceptions here and there, but for the most part, I see nothing less than five-year commitments. So if a doctor knows yeah, if a doctor knows they want to be done practicing, let's say at 70, and they, they'd like to do a DSO deal, and they're already 67 or 68, well, you know, no one's going to say, oh, well, since you want to be done at 70, we'll just give you a two or three year employment deal. They're going to say, well, you know, you're now going to have to extend out the time that you wanted to work. Yeah. So that's 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 one issue. Uh, another is that, you know, they're again, it's kind of all linked to the same thing. They they want to make sure that the doctor isn't just punching their ticket and fading off into the sunset. They want to make sure that they're actively and fully engaged. So beyond the employment agreement of at least five years, they're, they're also going to want a portion of the consideration that you receive at the closing to be in the form of equity, whether it be equity in the practice or equity in the parent company or sometimes a blend of both. They're not just going to hand you a check for the full amount. So they may tell a doctor, hey, your practice is $2 million and the doctor may say, wow, that's a great number. That's amazing. It's more than I ever dreamed I would ever get for my practice. But they might say, look, we're going to give you 60%, maybe a million two in cash at the closing, which by the way, in a lot of cases is still more money. The cash component alone is more than they ever thought they were going to get for the practice. But they're going to say, but you're going to also own 40% of that valuation in stock or equity. So you know, these are all ways by which they want to make sure the doctor is fully engaged, fully vested, You know, not going anywhere and putting forth their best effort on a going forward basis because they're making an investment. They not only want to get a certain return on their on their money, but at some point they may want to, in essence, sell the company to a bigger company. And if they have a whole bunch of doctors that are about to retire in, in 12 months, that's not going to make a, a buyer very interested. So so the, that, I think those are some of the issues. You know, The upside is they take most of, of the administerial tasks that doctors hate to have to deal with a lot of times. They take it off their table so they 
can really just come in and enjoy practicing dentistry every day. They they deal with the marketing and they deal with the benefits and they deal with the billing and the collecting and site maintenance and technology and IT services and payroll and all the things that you know an entrepreneur has to deal with every day. An entrepreneurial dentist, they take those things off your plate and typically will pay a premium price for the practice. And then the downside is it's a longer commitment. It's, it's going to be tied to equity. Sometimes there's formalities that a, lor- a larger organization has, such as uh, training that's required. Like I know one of my clients after doing a DSO deal and owning his practice for 35 years, he had to do sensitivity training, harassment training, things that were kind of part of human resources. And, you know, he did it. And, and But he was like, you know, it was kind of a weird experience for him because he was used to being the boss his whole life and he made all the rules, you know, it, and now all of a sudden you're part of a bigger organization that has certain requirements. I mean, candidly, they're, they're not, you know, there's nothing so profound about what they require. But again, when you've owned your own business for 35 years and it's always the world according to you and, and now you have someone who just gave you a giant check and, you know, you have to play ball with them and, and follow some of their rules. So, so that, that's kind of the upside and the downside. On the doctor to doctor deals, you know, the good, the good old fashioned uh, way, as you described before, Stan, the upsides there are you're literally picking your successor, right? You're, you're hand selecting the, the person. There are a lot of clients that we've had over the years who are opposed to corporate dentistry, who just as a philosophical thing, you know, don't believe that it's where the profession should be going. So they want to do a doctor to doctor deal. Some of the other upsides to those deals are um, not only you're picking your own successor, but you're, you're, you're kind of having a greater influence over the patient experience in the sense that you're you're reaching out to the patients, you're personally engaging in this transition to pass the torch. If ultimately you sell part of your practice or do like an associate buy-in, and then you know you've now also built a succession plan for when you want to sell the remainder. So you, you've, your succession plan and the course has kind of been charted in advance for you. Uh, another upside is that there's financing readily available. The specialty lenders they're still out there. You know there's a lot of the lending institutions have and you know specialty groups that just lend to dentists and they lend a hundred percent usually of the purchase price sometimes working capital so a young buyer who maybe has you know okay credit but they're upside down with student loans and everything else these banks will still lend them a hundred percent of a purchase price so so there's a lot of upside there the downside is frankly the transactions are going to price lower you know the the consideration is going to be less because remember a, a DSO is looking for a return on investment this isn't how they eat or pay their bills or their student loans. A doctor has to eat, pay a mortgage, pay their student loans, and pay the bank a huge nut every month. So what a doctor and a doctor-to-doctor deal can afford to pay versus a institution backed by a private equity group is, generally speaking, going to be considerably less in terms of the overall valuation. The other thing, too, is if you bring on a partner as kind of a staged transaction over, over a period of years, you're not, you're not divesting yourself of all those managerial responsibilities, especially when a young doctor is just kind of coming up and they've just bought in. They don't have the experience that you have running a business for 30 years or so. So, you know, they're going to have to be trained and taught how to do that over a period of time because they are now your succession plan um, and you're not necessarily going to have the relief that you would get. So, so you know, each transaction has its pros and cons and, and it really, there isn't a one size fits all. You know, there's a shoe for every foot, so to speak, and doctors have to do some soul searching as to you know what what's the right choice or path for me my only final word on it is if a dso deal is in the potential future 
plans for you as a doctor, you've got to start that process early. Um, you you, you want to start it years in advance of, of the actual trans, transition. And, and I can get into, you know, preparing your practice to be scrutinized heavily. You know, these private equity groups have world-class lawyers, world-class accountants. They're going to be dissecting through your books, your records, your billing system, your you know practice management system. And so you, you want to make sure that everything is tight. It's in order. You're following all the employment laws. You have good contracts with your associates. All the little, you know, you're classifying people properly as employees or independent contractors. There's a whole hit list I have of items that become problems in DSO deals. And what I try to do when a client thinks that might be something they want down the road is kind of prepare them to start getting their themselves cleaned up so that they look good when they go to do a DSO deal. Right. Uh, I think that's very sage advice. You know, I think the takeaway to this element of the conversation really is uh, to encourage the uh, the dentist, sort of no matter where they are in terms of, you know, the arc of their professional career is to really think about, you know, what their likely personal goals and objectives are at the time they transition. And as you say, begin to kind of plan accordingly uh, because it's, uh, as you say, there's there's benefit to being organized and thoughtful about uh, what you do and how you do it uh, earlier in the game as opposed to the 11th hour and the 59th minute. Uh, we've all seen those and those are uh, in the in the uh, deal business, those are deals that are often described as uh, having hair on them. Uh, right. <laughs> meaning that there's some complexity or challenges that otherwise might not be there if there have been a little bit more organized approach uh, ahead of time. Yeah, I'm sure, Bill, and you implied this a little bit in terms of what you described. You know, from my point of view, uh, DSOs have been a pretty significant disruptor in the transition landscape, largely as a function uh, their approach to practice valuations. And so I'm interested in terms of what perspectives you might have uh, relative to how you've seen uh, valuations change over time. Sure. I, I think um, as it relates to DSO valuations, I feel like I've, I've watched them kind of go on a, you know, a, an up and down kind of almost like wave rolling through, right? There's like in any market, there's times when things are red, red hot, and there's times when they cool and you know, sometimes they just cool a little, sometimes they cool a lot. And if I look at the last five years as a snapshot, you know, three, four, five years ago, I found that the pricing or the valuations for, that DSOs were putting out were through the roof. You'd look at it and say, how, how does this make economic sense, right? And, and I think we're seeing now with some failed DSOs that some of those deals didn't make economic sense. They were greatly overpaying for the, the practices they were buying in some cases. I saw a, a leveling out over the last couple of years where there were still very robust valuations being being offered, but not what I would call in crazy town. You know, uh, crazy town had had kind of closed down and now and now it was, you know, still aggressive valuations, but that but a little more tempered. And you would only really see large multiples of EBITDA, you know, in terms of how, which is how they, they value practices in the private equity world. You know, you see those multiples reserved for really, really large practices or multi-location practices. 
practices and so forth. And look, people talk too, so they they kind of create a distorted impression of, of what should be expected. Um, you know, you hear about one person who sold their practice for a multiple of 10 times EBITDA, and now doctors with totally different practices think that's what they're going to get. Um, so then what I saw in the last, you know, leading up to just recently was a, uh, a, a tempering of valuations, but still very robust. So now what am I seeing in the last three or four months? Uh, I'm seeing DSOs being more conservative. I'm seeing the multiples dialing back, um, even on very, very nice practices. I'm not seeing the types of multiples. Again, the valuations are still higher than we would typically see in doctor-to-doctor deals. No doubt about that. But they're, they're much more cautious and careful about the practices they buy, the dollars they pay, and the structures have tightened up too. So a DSO that might have paid a lot more in cash versus equity is now asking the doctor to take back more equity than they would have previously. They're sometimes asking them to also hold a promissory note, or they're doing what they call um, uh, maintenance provisions that require a doctor to maintain the same level of production in order to get some of the additional cash payments in the first, let's say, two to three years after a closing. So, And, and why are they doing these things? They're doing these things because they saw the DSOs that are struggling now who didn't do those things, and their private equity and investment banks, they're, they're seeing where people made good choices and where they made bad choices because now we have some history, right? Now, now that the DSO market has been around for a bit, we now have track records that we can look at and we can see those that have done well and, and how they structured their deals and their valuations and try to emulate that if I'm a D, if I'm a competitor. And you know, and we can see the, those who have done poorly and made mistakes and try to avoid all of those mistakes. So I know it's a long-winded answer, but it, it kind of has evolved. And, and obviously, look, for, oh, people always have to remember that private equity groups use a portion of their cash, their capital, to buy practices, but they also borrow. So it's a blend of their capital and and dollars borrowed during those crazy valuation times. Uh, I would, when valuations were, I would say were through the roof even more than they are now. They were borrowing at two percent. You know, now they might be borrowing at seven or eight percent. So that is a game changer from a pure cash flow standpoint of the of the amount that you're going to be paying out in debt service. So by definition, you can't pay as much for a practice that you might have paid before when you're borrowing at you know four potentially three or four times the rate you were borrowing at prior. Yeah, so. yeah I, I would agree with that. And, uh, you know, I've got a lot of experience on the DSO side of the uh, the, the table, um, basically being the person that was out there negotiating uh, uh, the acquisition of practices. And one of the things that I saw over time, when I first started in the business, basically, on the, essentially 100% of the deals I was involved in were proprietary, meaning I was really the only buyer in the conversation. And in the last several years, it's rare that you know a dentist doesn't have more than one, usually two, three, maybe even more DSOs that are in the conversation looking at the practice. And so, as a consequence, that that led to more competition for deals. And so, I think that drove a little bit of the escalation. And I agree with you. The 
the uh, the increase in, in the uh, interest rates and the cost of money has really led to some softening of evaluations for sure and some restructuring of terms in the ways that you described. But there's still, uh, there's still, you know, for the right opportunities, there's still very strong valuations out there. It's not uncommon in my experience for a seller to get you know, one and a half to as much as three times their total revenue and uh, acquisition price as compared to a dentist-to-dentist transaction with bank financing. It typically is in the 60 to 80% of revenue range. Usually a little bit higher, but uh, less so in uh, in today's environment, for sure. I agree com- completely. I, I see the exact same things. And, you know, and, and that's why really, as I said earlier, I think it always comes down to each individual doctor and what's a good fit for them. You know, you know, I, I've had doctors who say, "Look, I don't, I don't care that my valuation might be double what it what it would be. I've made a lot of money. I've been successful. That's not what it's about for me. I love my associate. I really want he or she to to own. And and they, you know, they have um, sometimes they have reasons why they're against DSOs. Other times, I call it a boogeyman effect. Right? They they don't really they just hear things and they think like you know a set of facts. And sometimes actually aren't true, but to each his own. Uh, but I agree with you. You know, there's no way to deny that even with the tempering of the marketplace, if you are willing and able to continue to work for a five-year agreement, and you know you're willing to continue to keep your same schedule that you've that you had prior, you know, a, a DSO transaction, you know, if you're comfortable with it, is is going to yield a significantly larger purchase price. And and I think I can say like unequivocally in almost every case, uh, maybe with the exception of a lot of DSOs aren't interested in smaller practices. Yeah. So there, there is kind of a threshold where for it to make economic sense for them, uh, unless they have a nearby large facility practice where they see a local doctor and they say, oh, well, we can merge that doctor's practice right into our big state-of-the-art facility that's only you know a half a mile away or a mile away, then they might be willing to buy a, a much smaller practice. But generally, if it's going to be a practice where they buy it and it's going to stay in that location, it's it's going to have to be of a certain size, and typically, at least my experience, Dan, is that that's somewhere you know over a million five in gross receipts or, or better. Uh, I mean, there's always exceptions, but typically they want to see a certain size to it, and you know, other, and and also by the way, number of treatment rooms can sometimes play a factor because DSOs don't just want to keep you stagnant, and they don't want to just keep like exactly where you are now. They're hoping that they can, with their ability and know-how and marketing and ability to recruit associate help and other things they're hoping that they can help you grow that practice sure. and make it and make it more successful so if you only have three treatment rooms you know or four treatment rooms and and you're already doing a million five or or so they look at it and say well where's the growth going to come from if you're already a, a great doctor with a great practice but it's it, it, it's limited in its physical plant you know that that can be a, a negative unless there's opportunities to either expand at that same location or opportunities to maybe move the location. But, you know, these are all factors that doctors have to think about when they go through the process. Yeah. Uh, and notwithstanding the fact that I specialize in helping dentists explore relationships with DSO buyers specifically, um, I tell every dentist, look, a DSO is not the answer for everyone for any number of reasons, some of which are yours, some of which may be the DSOs. And so fundamentally, what's important important is that you approach this with as much knowledge and information
conversation as possible. I start every conversation uh, with dentists uh, with whom I speak by saying, look, if you had a blank piece of paper in front of you, what is it that you most want to achieve as an outcome? Because, you know, if you can define that clearly, then I can help you sort through which of the various options is going to make the most sense for you. And which sort of leads to my next question, Bill. I know you've written a, a couple of books that focus on transition issues for dentists uh, specifically. Describe those for me, uh, if you will, and maybe also talk about how a listener who's potentially interested in getting the books uh, can, in fact, do that. Sure, sure. Well, thank you. I appreciate you mentioning it. So the first book that we wrote is called Pain-Free Dental Deals. And that book is what I would call kind of, um, for lack of a better word, the, the entry point book for either a doctor who wants to sell their practice, bring on a, an associate, um, or I'm an associate that wants to buy in. It's kind of the traditional buying and selling of practices or associate buy-ins. And we dedicate a chapter in the book to kind of the the surface of the D, of the DSO market, but the book is primarily about traditional transactions. And, and honestly, any doctor who's going to transact, I kind of recommend it as a first book because it will give you kind of basics and fundamentals. It's an easy read. It's available both in hardcover and audiobook uh, on Amazon, and and that's pain-free dental deals. The second book we wrote, the DSO decision, that came about because of a lot of what we're talking about right now. Right, we we represented many many clients all over the country in doing DSO deals, and in that process, I feel like we learned a lot about DSOs in general, not just you know the the deals and so forth, but the history of DSOs. How do DSOs make money? What are they looking for? What are some of the questions you should be asking if you're going to transact with a DSO? And then we get into the structure, the structures of the transactions. And what we decided to do when we wrote the book DSO Decision is we we wrote it from a completely neutral standpoint. It doesn't say, and it's why, by the way, the book has been used as um, for for some of the largest dental organizations you know in the country. They've used it at their national sales meetings um, as a required reading for the event. Uh, in fact, you know, without mentioning names, let's just say one of the largest suppliers in the world in in dental made it for their 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 transition team all how to read the book. Um, we took a neutral position. It's an educational book all about DSOs. We start literally with the history of them and we take you all the way through. And then at the very end, we we dedicated a chapter to preservation of private practice. You know, for those people who this sounds like a terrible idea to, here's an old, you know, here's what you got to be thinking about if you're going to successfully compete in a world with DSOs because they are not going away, that's for sure. And it probably will only become more and more prominent. So if I'm focused on on remaining independent, how do I compete? So so we really took, you know, a full look, including a deep dive into how the transactions are structured and so forth. And we used all the questions that we were getting from our clients around the country to kind of come up with the information that we wanted to put out in this book, The DSO Decision. So that's also available uh, on Amazon. It's also available in both hardcover and audiobook. And uh, we, you know, it's been great. We, we just did a, a lecture at Amos, uh, the oral surgery meeting um, about DSO Decision. We were asked to do that and we're actually going to be doing an entire day for them for their doctors coming up like a whole presentation on, on that subject and also um, just recently uh, this past week at, at DS World in Las Vegas we spoke about both you know regular transactions doctor to doctor deals and the DSO decision was was featured at, at that event as well so you know I encourage people not just in a self-serving way but for some good educational content I think the books have really gotten great reviews and we're very proud of it great well I you know I'm a believer in the old cliche knowledge is power uh, the more you know the more powerful you are ultimately and that 
that's certainly true when it comes to you know how you think about and pursue a, a transition for your practice is knowing how the the folks on the other side of the table think and operate enables you to have a little bit more leverage in the uh, in the conversation and the negotiations. So, yeah. and, I, and Stan, I'd like to actually give you a shameless plug, having known you for a long time. So I know we're supposed I'll to pretend. You know, I've told many people uh, about. these facts when you're not around so why not say it while you're around I think that one of the reasons why we come to you uh, to help a lot of our clients who are exploring this path I've always found it impressive your your background having been on the side of the DSOs having been with the private equity groups and negotiating those deals on their behalf gives you a very unique insight on how to help a seller doctor negotiate the best deal that they can because your experience in knowing what what people will say yes and no to, but also knowing the the buttons to push as to why you should get them to say yes to something. Um, we recently had a very complex transaction together that had a lot of major negotiation points. It was a very large deal for a very significant national practice. And, you know, the way that you were able to enhance that deal for the client based on your knowledge of being on the buy side previously, I, I think was invaluable. And it really, and I know our client felt the same way. So, you know, again, Again, shameless plug, but you know what? I, I really think that you've done some great work for our clients, and and we're grateful for it. So you know, thanks for having me on your program, but also thank you for for what you've done for our clients. Yeah, yeah. Thanks so much, Phil. I really appreciate that. I, I when I started everything DSO, um, you know, sort of the the core underlying premise was I, I felt historically that there was what I call uh, information and knowledge asymmetry between the DSO buyers and the vast majority of sellers. And it worked to the buyer's advantage uh, historically because, you know, they're very sophisticated people. Uh, They're dealing deals all day, every day. A dentist typically uh, sells a practice once in their professional career. Um, And they're not particularly well informed about all of the details of how to handle that in a way that's uh, most favorable to them. And so I think any dentist who's interacting uh, uh, or interested in exploring a relationship with a DSO could benefit from more knowledge and information on their side of the table. And that's uh, that's what I've sought to uh, to deliver as, as much as I can. And certainly, uh, you've done that both in terms of your direct representation as well as tr- through the sort of the book writing and uh, uh, the speeches and presentations that you deliver for, for sure. One last question, and then we'll wrap things up because I know I've uh, monopolized uh, more time than we bargained for here. Describe for me uh, maybe uh, one or two the challenge, uh, the, the uh, transitions that you felt had particularly difficult challenges, and what drove those challenges. Yeah, I, I think uh, a couple of a couple of things. One is I don't think you go into a negotiation without knowing kind of the answers to all the questions. Right? It goes back to my point about preparation. So when a client doesn't really know, for example, their EBITDA calculation. Um, And we could do a whole program on what does EBITDA really mean, but 
you know, for those who don't know out there, you know, it's an accounting term that basically gets to the root of, of a practice's earnings and DSOs are going to base their valuations on some multiple of that number. So if you don't know that number and you don't really know it properly going into a deal, you're already at a handicap in my opinion, because when, when a number comes back at you, you don't even know what to compare it to or to negotiate for or to, or to troubleshoot like where they might be wrong because they're often not correct. A lot of times a DSO buyer is just putting numbers into a model and, and, it, and it may be incorrect. It might not be spot on. So, so the lack of preparation can lead to more difficult transactions and it, and it goes right down the line. So what are some of the things that have popped up? Things like you get into a deal and you realize there's associates who don't have employment contracts with restrictive covenants. That's a problem because now they can literally hold up your transaction because a DSO is not going to proceed and they're not going to pay you millions of dollars if the associates can cause harm to the practice and and they're in a position where they can compete against the practice because you didn't do the job in having them sign an appropriate contract and even better, making that contract assignable. You can run into issues um, with the real estate. You know That's a problem that comes up from time to time because the, the location that you have, if you don't own it, which of course is the best scenario because now you kind of control as it relates to a lease or a sale, you're in control of that as a seller. But if you don't own the real estate and you're a tenant, what does that lease say? Do you have a right to assign that lease to a buyer? Is there enough term on it that the buyer is going to be comfortable that they don't, they're they not going to get tossed out of that location potentially and then have to make an investment in a new location? So troubleshooting leases is important. Making sure that you're compliant with employment laws. You know, Do you classify people properly as independent contractor versus employee? That's a problem we see on a lot of deals where doctors have improperly classified someone as independent who doesn't qualify under the IRS guidelines or under the uh, State Department of Labor guidelines. Uh, you know, it's again another issue. Are you compliant with employment laws? You know, do you pay people overtime who work overtime? Anything that you're doing in, that that's not being done according to the book, so to speak, you have to realize that because DSOs are backed by private equity and they're going to use the most sophisticated law firms and accounting firms in the world that represent them, they look at the acquisition of your practice like they were buying you know, a giant manufacturing company. They don't really know how to differentiate. They give you the 90-page asset purchase agreement and the 90-page equity agreement. And, you know, every word in those agreements means something, you know, so it's, you know, not being prepared and troubleshooting these issues. I've seen each one of the things I just mentioned and others become things that can either cause a, a problem of the transaction or completely derail it a, as well. So those are just a few that I think people would be well advised. And, and, one other, by the way, is sometimes clients come to me, they've already signed a letter of intent. They didn't troubleshoot anything. And they also just got so enamored by the number, which seemed in their mind to be so much better than they ever previously thought they would get. So they're just like, where do I sign? And now they've already signed on to the strike, even though it's technically non-binding. Once you sign it, the DSOs typically are going to make you live by it. And, right. and they're, and they're going to be very inflexible. So the time to negotiate, the time to have someone like you stand involved or or engage our law firm is when you're still negotiating the letter of intent and finalizing the terms and making sure the deal embodies all the things that you deserve to get. That's the time to have the professionals around you, not when you've signed a letter of intent and you say, oh, here it is. What do you charge to do my transaction? What do you charge to close my deal? And then you look at it and you realize you've done 20 deals with that DSO before. There's at least five or six terms that easily could have been asked for that they would have gotten that now they're not going to get because they rushed 
pushed off and signed something that should have been fully negotiated with the help of an advisor, the help of a, your lawyer in advance. So that's another thing to look out for. Yeah, I agree 100%. Bill, you delivered a ton of great content uh, that I think will be extremely valuable to, uh, to our listeners. So once again, I want to say thanks. Really appreciate it. And lastly, if someone has an interest in getting a hold of you um, or potentially getting access to one of the books you've written, what's the best way for them to do that? Sure. Um, sending a, a, me a personal email is totally fine. My email address is W Barrett, so it's W B A R R E T T at M B Law Firm.com. And the M is stands for Mandelbaum, the B stands for Barrett. So W Barrett at M B Law Firm.com. Shoot me a personal email. Uh, happy to send you uh, a courtesy copy of a book or answer questions. Um, we always give people that inquire with us uh, a courtesy consultation if they're contemplating a transaction. So always happy to take that call or, um, or receive your email. Great. Uh, once again, Bill, thanks so much. Really appreciate it. Um, and I look forward to continuing to work with you in the future. Thanks, Dan. Thanks for having me on. I really enjoyed sure it. Thing. Have a great day. You too. This has been Success Strategies for Dental Practice Owners. We hope you gain valuable insights and practical wisdom that will guide you on your journey to success with your practice. To visit Stan Kinder on the web, go to www.everythingdso.com. If you found today's episode helpful, don't forget to hit the subscribe button so you never miss an opportunity to hear brilliant insights from dental industry insiders. Remember, whether you're planning your next strategic move, seeking ways to enhance your practice's value or dreaming of expanding your dental empire, we're here to guide you on your way to success.